we do thank you for this time together as your people. And we do thank you for the privilege of worship together by your design. And we thank you for the privilege of being able to do that in freedom. Would you now take our time uh, this morning and conform and shape our thoughts as we consider these grave and important truths that have to do with your word and all that you have told us about your plans for the end of the days of this creation. Help us to think through these things biblically and most importantly, help our hearts to be caught up in praise and worship over your sovereign majesty that is displayed both in judgment and salvation. We offer our time to you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have been excited, as were many of you, to get back and to get into Matthew chapter 24. I know many of you have expressed your desire to turn to this incredible portion of Scripture and to see all that Christ has revealed to us about the last days, particularly in relation to God's future plans to the nation of Israel specifically and to the world ultimately. Now, the primary focus of Christ in Matthew 24 through 25 is the terrible judgment that is to come from both His hand, the Messiah's hand, and the hand of His Father. Judgment that is to come upon Israel and the world, as it said, at the end of this present age. However, God's plan for this final period of time includes much more than simply His judgment, but it fits into a larger picture and all of those things that are related to His purposes and plans for this creation, the believer, and the unbeliever. Now, the study of these things is known as eschatology, as many of you are familiar with. Eska comes from a Greek word that means lastology, refers to the study of something. So eschatology is essentially the study of the last things. That is, again, all that God has planned and purposed for the final days of this present creation. It has to do with God's eternal purpose that he mentions in Ephesians 1.11, the summing up of all things under the administration of Christ. Now, contrary to the ideas of secular man, and particularly the evolutionary mindset of secularism, the world did not just happen, and it will not continue on this indefinite linear path according to the whims and the will of man. Rather, God created this world, and He created this world with a purpose. And that purpose included the fall of man into sin. It includes the current conditions that mark a fallen world. It included the incarnation, the atonement, the resurrection, the ascension, and the return of Christ, the Son. It includes the judgment that is to come. It includes the ultimate end of His redeeming purposes, which is to dwell with those He has placed in His Son by the Spirit in intimate and joyous fellowship forever on a new heavens and a new earth where only righteousness dwells. And every purpose person is swept up into this grand theme of the purpose of God somewhere. Either on the side of Satan and this world or on the side of God and all that He is in Christ and on the side of truth. So everybody's in it at some point. Now this morning I want to accomplish two things. Two things. I want to give a very broad overview of the eschatological Schemes that are understood by the church. Now we'll get into the details of these as we work through the passage, Matthew 24 and 25, in the future. We're not going to do that this morning. Second, I want to then end briefly with a consideration of the significance of all of this. Why is this important to us and not simply an add on to our theology, a period at the end of the sentence? Now this morning then will be a little bit different than our normal course for a sermon. It will be less digging into a singular text and walking through it and more giving an overview of the systems of theology and understanding of the biblical view of God's presentation of the end times. I think it is necessary to do this and I hope that it will be helpful. So let me begin simply by giving a broad overview of eschatology. A broad overview of eschatology. 
As mentioned already, eschatology is a very broad category that includes many things. All those things related to the eternal state, so heaven and hell, the intermediate state, the kingdom of God, the return of Christ, the rapture, the revelation, or the resurrection, tribulation, antichrist, church, Israel, the final judgment, as well as prophecy, all that God has said in the Old Testament, particularly to His people, anticipating all of His plans for them and for the earth. In other words, eschatology covers the panorama of Scripture and its teaching on God's plan for the final period of this fallen creation. A well-known theologian, Michael Horton, has summed up the importance of eschatology in this sentence. Eschatology is not simply a concluding topic, but an indispensable lens through which we come to understand the whole system of Christian faith and practice. End quote. And I think that he's right on that point. Now again, there's no way to cover these things in detail. There's no way to cover all of the arguments and every topic and everything related to the issue of eschatology in one single message. Nor should it be tried to do so. So I will not attempt to do that this morning. My goal again this morning is to give us a broad approach or understanding of eschatology to help us understand the basic approaches to it within Christendom, even again if very broadly. Now there are then two basic approaches or systems of thought regarding eschatology, covenantalism and dispensationalism. Now people have heard those terms, but I think they're more familiar in terms of having seen them mentioned by theologians or in a book, but they're very often less understood by God's people. So my hope this morning is at least to get to the essence of these two systems, if not all the details, to help us understand what is being said. Now it's important to say up front, however, that both those who are covenantalist and those who are identified as dispensationalist agree and hold firmly to the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture and all of those precious truths related to God and to His salvation. In other words, we are talking about two differences of thoughts among those who are brothers and sisters in Christ, those who are believers, those with whom we love, we serve, and we do can do ministry in many ways together. There are differences, however, in our understanding of the specific outworking of God's plan of redemption and its relationship to Israel and to the church. And those are things that distinguish uh, these two systems. Let me begin by looking briefly at covenantalism. Covenantalism. As a system of theology, as a codified, coherent system of theology, it came about in the mid or late 1600s, so the 17th century. And it is essentially based on an understanding of God's plan for creation and redemption that flow out of three distinct covenants. Some would say two, but basically three distinct covenants. A covenant of redemption, a covenant of works, and a covenant of grace. The covenant of redemption essentially is this. It is a Trinitarian covenant made before creation in which the Father gave the Son as Redeemer and Head of an elect people. The Son then offers Himself to the Father as a substitute sacrifice for these people. And the Spirit committed to apply the work of His Son to those given to Him by the Father. That is a covenant of redemption. It is an eternal covenant within the system. Secondly, there is then the covenant of works. And this refers to God's covenant with Adam in which Adam is given the promise of eternal life for obedience and death for disobedience. So we're familiar with God's command to Adam in the garden, Genesis chapter 2. You can eat of all of the trees, but the tree that is in the middle of the garden, the, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you cannot eat from that, for in the day that you do, you will die. You will die. Now, it's important to understand that for a covenantalist, these works then of Adam are not essentially meritorious, but they were to maintain his state of innocence in a time of testing after which he would receive eternal life. There is a third covenant, and it is the covenant of grace within this system. And it refers to God's gracious agreement with the elect sinner to provide a Savior. And this covenant is seen as being revealed primarily in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Let me read it to you to refresh your memory. After the fall, 
God said, speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Known sometimes as the Proto-Evangel, the first gospel in Scripture in which God anticipated what He would do to overthrow and to destroy the works of the devil that led humanity into the state of sin. That covenant is described by one as this. God's solemn pledge to accomplish redemption by Christ and to apply it in Christ to His elect. End quote. God's solemn pledge to accomplish redemption by Christ and to apply it in Christ to His elect. Now this covenant of grace then within covenantalism and covenant theologians is the defining covenant through which all of God's works and promises are to be interpreted. In other words, every covenant explicitly revealed in Scripture, the covenant that God made with Noah, with Abraham, with David and with the new covenant is seen as an outworking of this one overarching covenant of grace. This covenant of grace then is a unifying aspect in throughout, uh, over all of Scripture and defines all of God's saving purposes. Now let me make a few notes about this then. According to the system or within this system, Israel in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament are understood essentially as parallel to each other. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant are essentially two administrations then of this one covenant of grace. Different administrations over the one people of God. So essentially then, Israel is the church in the Old Testament. Not only an entity that came about in Acts chapter 2 with the coming of the Spirit. The church then, within covenantalism, has replaced Israel as the fulfillment of all of the promises that God gave to Israel in the Old Covenant. They are fulfilled spiritually in the church. Listen to this described by one covenant theologian, Louis Burkhoff. He says this, The New Testament church is essentially one with the church of the Old Dispensation. Yet several important changes resulted from the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. The church was divorced from the national life of Israel and obtained an independent organization. In connection with this, the national boundaries of the church were swept away. What had up to this time been a national church now assumed a universal character, end quote. So in other words, the church is but a greater Fulfillment of what Israel was in the Old Testament, but there is a parallel. This is why, for example, our Presbyterian brothers and sisters believe in paedo-baptism, which quite interestingly, we attend a Presbyterian church in North Carolina, and paedo-baptism was the substance of the two sermons, the two Lord's Days we were there, interestingly. Now, the reason that is so, paedo-baptism, for those who don't know, is the baptizing of babies who are children of New Covenant parents, or at least where there is one believing, New Covenant-believing member of that family. So the thinking is, then, that because the church is essentially like the Old Testament Israel as the people of God, the baptism has replaced circumcision as the sign of the covenant. So as Old Covenant children receive the sign of circumcision, so New Covenant children receive the sign of baptism. Rather, it's not by immersion. Most often, it is by a sprinkling of water on the head. Another aspect of covenantalism. Covenantalism, then, does not believe that God has any future plans for Israel, note this, that are specifically related to His Old Covenant promises for them as a nation on this present earth. They do not believe then that there is a fulfillment of a real earthly and restored kingdom of Israel. This means then that all of the Old Testament prophecies related to the nation of Israel are, in the eyes of a covenantalist, fulfilled in the church spiritually. They are, in their mind, more greatly fulfilled than even what the Old Testament Israel anticipated. 
Now some do believe that God will save Israel based on His promise in Romans eleven twenty six that all Israel will be saved. But they would not hold that He will fulfill the promises of a restored kingdom on this earth with a regenerated Israel with Messiah reigning over them. And that is an important distinction. This means then, as a third point, that covenantalists do not see a future reign of Christ on this earth, which brings us then to the millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom refers to the reign of Christ on this earth from Jerusalem over restored Israel with resurrected believers from all ages, and this reign will last for a period of 1,000 years. Now turn with me briefly over to Revelation chapter 20. Very briefly, we're going to look at this. And I want to hit the main points, but leave plenty of time at the end to understand the significance of this. But let's stop for a moment and read Revelation 20. Revelation 20 comes after, as you know, the return of Christ in Matthew, or Revelation 19. And John says this, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power. And they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It is from this text of Scripture that a specific and a definite period of time is given for God's plans after the return of Christ for His people on this earth. This is where we get then the millennial kingdom. Now within covenantalism would approach this passage and would not take the thousand years as literal, but a figurative or symbolic expression of Christ's present reign, reign over His people on this earth. Leon Morris, a covenantalist, describes it in this way. All millennialists hold that there is not not a literal millennium. The thousand year period is symbolic. It stands for the whole time between the life of Jesus on earth and his second coming. They usually see the first resurrection as the new birth of the believer, his rising from the death of sin, end quote. So as that is read within the system of covenantal theology, primarily that thousand years refers then to Christ's reign now. It refers to the present age. Now within covenantalism then, there are two views of this millennium. The first is amillennialism. When you put a little A in something, it negates whatever comes after it. So in this case, it would be saying not a millennium. In other words, that there is no millennium. However, we must be careful to note that they're not saying there is no millennium for that language is used, but rather they would maintain that they do not negate it, but they interpret it differently. Now, while there are different variations of this view, it basically holds that there will be a general cycle of evil in this world that gets progressively worse and then Christ will come. Again, there are some variations on that point. Some are more positive, some are more negative. 
But they hold then that at the end of this age, this present period, at an appointed time, Christ will return to judge the earth, gather his elect, and then usher in the eternal state. Thus there will be one resurrection of the righteous and wicked, a single final judgment, and the new heavens and the new earth. Again, as Leon Morris explained, that first resurrection within covenantalism is a resurrection unto life, spiritual life, and the second resurrection is the actual physical resurrection. Another form of this kind of millennialism is post-millennialism, post-millennialism. And for some of you, you may know that this was the major view of the Puritans and Princeton theologians. And post refers to after, in other words, after the millennium. So these maintain then that the millennium refers again to the current age in which the kingdom of Christ based on the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18, will continue to expand through the influence of the gospel until the world is essentially under the reign of Christ. To remind you of Matthew 28, Jesus said this, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. They would argue then that that is a promise, that is a command that Christ, who said, Lo, I am with you always, who is Lord of heaven and earth, will fulfill in preparing this present world for his future return. Now, for clarification, let me say this. They do not mean, a post-millennialist, that every person will be a Christian, but that Christianity and the gospel will overall be the dominant influence on the earth at the time of Christ's return. After this point, he will establish his final kingdom in the eternal state, known as the eternal state, and there will be a resurrection, the final judgment, and the new heavens and the new earth. Now, interestingly, because of its primarily positive outlook, sort of the culture and the times have largely defined, uh, or uh, have largely defined how many people uh, accept the system. And so it flourished of course, at the time of the Puritans coming over into America, this promised new world, this new land of freedom and opportunities. And it flourished, interestingly, after World War II when there was a similar mindset in our culture. Now, the significant issue here, then, is how this relates to a matter of interpretation. Interpretation. As many of you know, that fancy word hermeneutics, of hermeneutics. And the question is this. How then are we to understand the Old Testament promises to the nation of Israel? Now, because covenantalists understand that prophetic promises to Israel is fulfilled in the church, again, they do not think there will be a literal fulfillment as the Old Covenant saint would have understood the plain meaning of the text in the Old Testament. In other words, a covenant theologian would hold then to a historical grammatical Method of interpretation, that means that you understand the text by its historical context and the language that's actually used and how it would have made plain sense to the original reader. They apply that to most of their theology and their understanding of the Bible, but not when it comes to the prophecies concerning the future salvation and earthly blessing of Israel. So again, the promises to Israel that predict their living in the land promised to Abraham under the reign of Messiah over a regenerate Israel in which the nations stream to her to participate in her worship of the one true God, they would say are now fulfilled and will be fulfilled in the church. However, if these promises are taken at face value, then there are clearly covenant promises that center on the nation of the Israel and the land of Jerusalem that are not yet fulfilled and are not yet fulfilled then in the church. As a matter of fact, one older covenantalist said this. Now we must frankly admit that a literal interpretation of the Old Testament prophets gives us just such a picture of an earthly reign of the Messiah as the premillennialist pictures. That was the kind of messianic kingdom that the Jews at the time of Christ were looking for on the basis of a literal kingdom interpretation of the Old Testament prophecies, end quote. In other words, if you read them as they are plainly written you would expect an earthly kingdom restored glory to the nation of Israel with Messiah reigning from the temple in Jerusalem over a regenerate Israel, people of God. Now a key issue then here is how much continuity or discontinuity there is between the two testaments. 
Or even more precisely this is the question. Should the Old Testament be interpreted exclusively in light of the New Testament or should God's promises in the Old Testament be also allowed to stand on their own? That is the real question. Recently, when I was in Kentucky for my last long school stint, I was at a table having lunch with my brothers and friends there, and I was outnumbered four to one in which this was the topic of conversation. Should the Old Covenant promises be interpreted exclusively in light of the New Covenant, or should they be allowed to stand also on their own? Now, the question is not then simply that a covenantalist and a dispensationalist differ on a literal interpretation or somebody else spiritualizing it. That's missing the point. It is, rather, does the New Testament have a blanket interpretive priority over the Old Testament? Again, to the covenantalists, they say yes. So, for example, the land that was promised to the nation of Israel is now the earth. It's, it's fuller, it's expanded, it's even greater. So no longer is there an expectation of the boundaries listed in the Old Testament, but it is in an even greater fulfillment in the church, and it includes the whole earth. The seed of Abraham, within covenantalism, only refers to those who are true spiritual children of Abraham and does not at all refer to the nation of Israel. However... To the dispensationalist, the Old Testament prophecies in Scripture, while expanded on in the New Testament, must not be robbed of their, new, their Old Testament meaning, their original meaning. This brings us then to the second position. And I'll go fairly quickly here. Dispensationalism. And for those who are wondering, Newtown Bible Church then is dispensational. We would hold then to the essence of what dispensational theology teaches. Not everyone here is dispensational, and as I know as I speak, that we have covenantal brothers and sisters that are among us, and so I try to be very sensitive and fair and clear in talking about these things. Now, dispensationalism has been very often and poorly represented and misunderstood, charged with everything from teaching two ways of salvation to teaching non-lordship salvation. And unfortunately, it has been the position of some who make ridiculous assertions, such as most recently Harold Campanine, about the return of Christ, which we would all say are unbiblical. Now sadly, there have been statements made by some early dispensationalists that would give credence to some of the accusations. However, these charges are false and do not represent the heart of what dispensationalism teaches. Dispensationalism came about as a system of theology in the late 1800s by John Nelson Darby, a minister in the Plymouth Brethren Church. Essentially, through a study of Isaiah 32, he came to understand that God had a distinct future plans for the nation of Israel that included blessings on this earth in fulfillment of Old Testament promises that are distinct from the blessings of the eternal state. In other words, there are blessings defined in Scripture that, that are a part of two different clear ages within the plan of God, the eternal state and those that have to do with this earth. He further believed that these promises would be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom when Christ sits on the throne of David, ruling over a regenerate Israel. Now this idea of dispensationalism was popularized in America through the Schofield Reference Bible in the early 1900s and then later given a greater theological foundation by Lewis Sperry Schaefer who was president of Dallas Theological Seminary. Now, what are the essentials then of dispensationalism? Well, first, let's define it. A dispensation refers to the way that God administers His rule over His people and the conditions and the responsibilities of man under this rule. Or to use a more popular definition by Ryrie, Charles Ryrie, a dispensation is a distinguishable economy in the outworking of God's plan. A distinguishable economy in the outworking of God's plan. Now within each of these, salvation is always by grace through faith in the promises of God. And yet it says that God exercises His rule, administers these promises in His relationship with man in different ways at different times of different, in different periods throughout redemptive history. Now, in his book, Dispensationalism, Essential Beliefs and Common Myths, which was going to be available next week, Michael Vlock identifies six points that are essential to dispensationalism. That's far beyond what we're going to do this morning, so I narrowed it down to two. 
I narrowed it down to two, and I've conflated a few of them. First is this. First is this. A consistently literal hermeneutic that allows Old Testament prophecy to maintain its original meaning. The first is this, a consistently literal hermeneutic that allows Old Testament prophecy to maintain its original meaning. Now, both the dispensationalist and the non-dispensationalist would argue for a little literal hermeneutic. However, the difference is this. The non-dispensationalist, again, believes that all of those Old Testament prophecies should be interpreted in light of their New Testament fulfillment in the church. They're given a new light is shed on them, in other words. New truth has been brought to bear on them. And so whatever they would have originally understood has now been superseded, in a sense, by the light of the New Testament. This is an extremely important point. Now, dispensationalist acknowledges the obvious point that the shadows of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Christ and that many prophetic anticipations are filled out or expanded on or clarified, but that they are not canceled, annulled, or redefined. In other words, we would insist that the Old Testament prophetic passages not be stripped of their original meaning as they would have been understood by the Jewish readers at that time. The expansion of the promise need not mean the cancellation of earlier commitments God has made, one has said. In fact, if God did not mean to fulfill those nationalistic promises to Israel, then God could be accused of misleading them and giving them a false hope, we would argue. So when God promises Jews that they're going to be in the land promised to Abraham, that they will be as a nation regenerate, that they will be under the Messiah, that the glory of the nations will stream to Jerusalem, he means just that. He does not mean that that is no longer the case and the Jewish nation is now subsumed in the reality of the church. We as the Gentiles participate in those blessings, but we do not completely fulfill them in place of Israel. Secondly, then, a dispensationalist, we would hold, then, that there is a distinction between Israel and the church. I'll explain that. The term Israel is used over 70 times in the New Testament, and each time, I would argue, refers to the physical nation of Israel. And Israel is never referred to as equated to the church. Never referred to as equated to the church. And this distinction is maintained after Pentecost and the establishment of the church, not only in the Gospels. Now, to say that does not mean that we deny that there's a spiritual unity of Jews and Gentiles together in Christ. In fact, this very equality of a Jew and a Gentile in Christ is the mystery of the church revealed. That Jew and Gentile are together in a new body. Ephesians 2, 16 through 17. He will make the two into one new man. It does mean, however, that while there's a spiritual unity, there is a distinct role that Israel plays. I think that could probably best be illustrated in this way, in Galatians 3.28. Let me just mention that to you. You're familiar. This is a favorite passage, by the way, of our egalitarian friends who say then that there's no distinction of role between a husband and a wife, a male or a female. They're all just blended together. And this is the verse that is used, but we'll make another application, of course. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Heirs according to the promise. In other words, there is a complete spiritual unity between all of those groups. The Jews and the Gentiles, we both come to Christ on the same spiritual footing. A male and a female, we come to Christ on the same spiritual footing. And yet, male and female particularly play distinct roles. There is a headship of the husband in a marriage and there is the submission of the wife within a marriage. There is the leadership of elders within the church that is male, and there is the submission of women in the church and the roles that God has designed for them. There is equality, and yet there is distinction. And that is the idea of the, the emphasis on Israel within dispensationalism. There is equality, and yet there is a particular function or role that Israel will play. Second point on that. God's plan for Israel then involves more than her salvation, but also her restoration. As I mentioned earlier, many covenant theologians acknowledge 
that God will turn Israel to himself in a great spiritual salvation. That's Romans eleven twenty six. You can't get around it. And all Israel will be saved. It's very simple. What is not agreed upon is this. That we maintain that in fulfillment of the promises God made to Israel in the Old Testament and what is included in those covenants is this. That Israel will not only be saved but restored to a place of preeminence among the nations in the land promised to Abraham on a rejuvenated earth and a restored and a glorified Jerusalem. That's the distinction. We read about that actually this morning in Zechariah chapter 14. Now, technically, that, of course, should have been Jeremiah 29, if I were paying attention. But nonetheless, we read it, and he mentions it there. That there will be a gathering of the nations against Jerusalem in battle, in which the Lord will come, and he will destroy these nations. His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in the front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will split in the middle from east to west by a very large valley. Later, he says, you will see the fleet. You will flee by the valley of my mountains, the valley of the mountains that reach Azel, and so forth. And he talks about this glorious day in that living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. Half of them toward the eastern and half of them toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as winter. In other words, there is going to be a great change that comes about. And yet it will be when Christ comes to his people in Jerusalem just as the prophets anticipated. And it will be that the nations will come and worship with Jerusalem. In verse 16, it will come about that any who are left of the nations that went against Jerusalem, those who are left alive on the earth after his return, will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And all of those instruments then related to worship will be holy to the Lord. It will be a place in which righteousness dwells. That then was the hope. That was then the hope of the Jew, and it still is. This leads into a final point on this. Mentioned earlier, the millennial kingdom then refers to a period of 1,000 years in which all of the saved, those made righteous through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ in both the Old Testament and New Testament will be resurrected, will reign with Christ and under Christ, and will be present with His people on a restored earth after the tribulation period and before the eternal state. In other words, the new heavens and the new earth. During this period, all of the redeemed will share in the blessings of the new covenant, but the nation of Israel will hold a pride of place among the nations. Consider this. After walking and intimately hearing the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ for three years, after spending 40 days in intimate fellowship with Christ after his resurrection, just before the ascension, what did the disciples turn and ask him in Acts chapter 1 6? They said this Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? He did not reject that question he simply said it's not for you to know that time it will come about when i plan it it will come about at the time that it has been determined by the father's plan rather it is not a wrong question it is a right question it is just not yet the time that time when he will restore the kingdom to israel as anticipated by the prophets it will come Let me make a few notes here. The millennial kingdom then was the dominant view of the early church until the third century. The roots of all millennialism weren't planted really until about the fourth century through Augustine in his magnus opus, The City of God. However, listen to a couple of early fathers of the church. Justin Martyr in the second century said this, But I and others who are right-minded Christians on all points are assured that there will be a resurrection of the dead and a thousand years in Jerusalem, which will then be built, adorned, and enlarged as the prophets Ezekiel and Isaiah and others declare. They understood that this was in fact to be the case. Tertullian, from the second and third century, he lived, said this, but we do confess that a kingdom is promised to us on earth inasmuch as it will be after the resurrection for a thousand years in the divinely built city of Jerusalem let down from heaven. This is how they understood it. This is how they understood the promise. This is how they understood what was to be expected by the sovereign plan of God. 
And it makes sense. The millennial kingdom completes then God's plans for and promises to Israel. God's promises to Israel were at their heart spiritual, but they were not only spiritual, they were physical. In other words, the promises of land, people, and abundance were part of the hope of Israel, and these were included in the promises. When it said Israel being restalled as a nation in her land with a specific identity and a role in the service to the nations was the hope. One last thing. Dispensationalists, we would also hold in that there will be a rapture of the church just before the beginning of the tribulation period. Now, this issue of the rapture has been much debated, and again, we'll get into the details of this in Matthew 24. But there are several views. The pre-tribulational rapture, which says that Christ will come and receive those who are His, uh, the church, just before the tribulational period, and they will go up to meet Him in the air. Some, air. Some say there's a partial rapture only of the faithful and those who are walking faithfully. Some say it will happen in the middle of the tribulation and some after the tribulation. Again, we'll look at those details as we go through the text. Let me give you a final overview then. What is a final overview of the, final event, of the last events of this age? What is the big picture? What is going to take place? What are we to expect? How are we to discern this world and the present work of God in this age? First, we maintain this then. According to 1 Thessalonians 4, primarily, although certainly not only that passage, that the church present on earth before the tribulation period will be caught up with the Lord in the air. This is known as the rapture, and they will forever be with the Lord. This is an imminent event. In other words, it means basically it could happen at any time. Any time. Nothing precludes this from happening at any time. Secondly, that there will be, after this rapture, a period of seven years in which God will pour out His wrath upon the rebellious earth during what is known as the tribulation period. This period will begin with the great apostasy of the professing church in 2 Thessalonians 2. In other words, we would expect to see a burgeoning church in name only that is empty of genuine spiritual life, that is unregenerate, and that will turn and follow the false system of the Antichrist. This period will begin then with the great apostasy of the professing church and the beginning of the rise of the Antichrist and a wholesale opposition to the gospel. This period will also include great salvation and many will be saved during this time. But the overarching reality is the judgment of God upon the rebellious. At the beginning of this tribulation period, the Antichrist, one who will be uniquely possessed and under the control of Satan, will rise and make a covenant with Israel, bringing peace to the Middle East. I would submit to you that many have reevaluated their understanding simply by the fact that Israel in the mid-19th or 20th century was once again made a nation. An impossible feat, it seemed, before it actually happened. And yet, there they are, which would be necessary then for this Antichrist to make a covenant with them. In the middle of the seven years, the tribulation period, three and a half years after this covenant is made with Israel, the Antichrist will break that covenant, turn against the people of God, and at this point, Israel will undergo a great and severe persecution at the hand of the Antichrist, and yet the nation as a whole will turn to the Lord in true and repentant faith. This is precisely what Christ is dealing with in Matthew 24. There will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. If you either are alive and you're his people at that time, he says, Behold, he is in the wilderness. Do not go out. Behold, he's in the inner rooms. Don't go out and do those things. Many false Christs are going to come, but you are, they are to flee into the wilderness to escape the great wrath that is to come. Number four, at the end of the seven years, Jesus will return with the saints already in heaven and destroy all rebellious humanity in a final battle called Armageddon. We read it earlier, Satan will be bound for a thousand years, no longer able to deceive the nations. 
After that, all of the saints who were either resurrected or taken to be with Christ at the rapture and all Old Testament saints and all martyrs killed during the tribulation will be resurrected. This is the first resurrection and we will reign with Christ for 1,000 years on a rejuvenated earth where the child plays next to the hole of a cobra where if somebody dies at 100, they will be thought accursed where he will rule over this new creation with a rod of iron. This, that we will reign with him in this kingdom. This kingdom will also include those who are saved and are not destroyed in the final battle along with any remaining children in Armageddon. Again, he mentioned that in Zechariah 14, those who still remained after this time. All of the saints who were either, or after that, Christ then will sit as after he returns. He will also then sit on David's throne, return, ruling his people from a glorious and a restored temple. We'll get into that in Matthew 25. At the end of the thousand years, Satan will be let loose to deceive all of those in the millennial kingdom that were either born to those alive at Christ's return or ushered into the state. Uh, at the time of his return and he will, he will deceive them and they will rise up in rebellion against Christ in this final battle and Christ will finally destroy them in all opposition to his rule. The present heaven and earth then will be swept away and destroyed after which God will bring all humanity that has ever existed before him at the great white throne judgment. And at this judgment all the wicked and unrepentant of all time will be cast into the eternal lake of fire where they will be tormented forever along with Satan and his demons, forever bearing God's just judgment for their sin and rebellion and unbelief. At the same time, those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, who did believe God's promises and turned to Him, who were cleansed by the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, will be ushered into a new heavens and a new earth. At this point then, A new heavens and a new earth will come down from heaven from God. And God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit will forever dwell in intimate and joyous fellowship with His people in the full experience of God's love to them and their love to God and one another. That is the glorious hope of us as Christians. And more importantly, not only is it a glorious hope, it is one that is assured to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we looked at in 1 Peter 1, 3. However, before that glorious day, there is much judgment and destruction to come upon the world. And that's going to be the focus of Matthew 24 through 25, which we'll look at over the next several weeks. However, for this morning, I want to spend the remaining few minutes addressing why this matters to us. Why is this important for us to think about? Is this simply debate about minutia and things that aren't important? Do we simply punt and don't care? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. They are very important for us and we should be clear on them and we should rejoice in all that God has revealed about it. So the second point uh, is this. The significance of eschatology. Beyond the systems and details of the text which have their place, eschatology is given by God not only to warn the unbeliever but to encourage those who are truly His. Listen to the word of one Old Testament commentator who captured this well. It is part of the purpose of biblical eschatology to allow the ultimate vision to brighten the intermediate dark days. In other words, it should provide hope to God's people. It should provide encouragement. It should provide hope of a brighter day that God will bring in His own due time. The details and discussion have their place but what stands as the foundation of it all is the gospel of Christ through whom we have redemption through whom we've been made citizens. So let me give you at least four reasons why it's important. First is this, and I'll just mention it. It is a major theme of Scripture. It is not a minor theme of Scripture. In other words, it is not that God mentions the end once or twice and people are making a big deal about it. It is from Genesis to Revelation at the very heart of the hope of God's people. How is he going to deal with sin, redeem his people, and what is the end of it all? Will it continue as it is, or does God have better plans, and what are those plans? For very often, God's people have looked at what seems like a hopeless future, when evil seems to have the sway. The Jewish hope was in many senses earthly, but after that it was primarily they awaited the time of her glorious future, her reign with Messiah, and we also look forward to this great time. That is a major theme of Scripture. 
Secondly, and for this, turn to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. Secondly, it helps us to understand our world and have a biblical framework for world events. It helps us to understand our world and have a biblical framework for world events. As much as any time we are being thrust to reevaluate the sovereignty of God over the nations, we are, our culture, taking such radical shifts. How quickly it has turned. How differently things have turned around than what was expected 20, 15, 30 years ago. And many Christians are doubting or wondering. You know, it was not unlike this for Asaph in Psalm 73. He said in verse 2, My feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Why? I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They had no pains in their death. Their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges with fatness, and the imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock And wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. And they have set their mouth against the heavens. And their tongue parades through the earth. Is that not a part of what God's people have dealt with through the ages? Is that not our nation? Who mock at the holiness of God. Who mock the authority of His word. Who dismiss His holiness. And who deny His saving work in the Lord Jesus Christ. Or even their need for it. Indeed, there is words of arrogance that is worn by those who hate God's truth. Homosexuality is simply one manifestation of that. It goes much deeper. We've killed children for years. We have condoned wicked sexual practices and evil in our country for much too long. And there is a time that it will come to pay the price for that. Listen to what he says. As the righteous man, he says in verse 13, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. He's endured the the difficulties of living in that kind of rebellious culture. And yet, he said later, Until I came, in verse 17, into the sanctuary of God, and then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away with sudden terrors. Like a dream. When one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. In other words, by understanding the end, by understanding what God had planned, how He would uphold His justice, how He would accomplish salvation for His people. He gained hope to persevere, and He could say, Whom have I in heaven but you, and beside you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God will forever be that for Him, looking even beyond this world into eternity. God is His hope. Understanding these things gives us that hope and that clarity of perspective. Number three, it causes us to live soberly and hopeful in this world and holy in this world. Let me read one other text. One other text in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says in verse 3, Know this first of all, in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust. Sounds similar to what Asap described in Psalm 73. Where is the promise of His coming, they will say. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. When they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by His word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. In other words, it escapes their notice that the world is being prepared for destruction by the unrighteous, or of the unrighteous. In verse 10, the day will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Now look at verse 11. 
And we need to remember this. For sometimes there is, for some anyway, this fascination, almost like watching sci-fi, of what God will do in the last days. And yet it seems to get divorced from the holiness of life that it should produce. And the humility and the great sorrow for what is coming upon the wicked world. A great humility for what God has saved us from in the death and the resurrection of His Son. He says this in verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be holy in conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt? But according to His promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look it for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. What effect should this have on us? To hold lightly to the things of this world, to hold tightly of the things to come and to Christ, and to live obediently and holy in this world, in humility and godliness. That's the effect it should have on us. Fourthly, And then we'll pray. It gives us hope and courage then to faithfully serve Christ. At the end of his discussion of the resurrection, Paul said, therefore, be abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because you will be resurrected. Because the gospel is real. Because Christ has been resurrected and is returning. So you live for those things, not for the things that are here. Live for the things that are to come. Live for the things that are to come. Listen to these final words and then we'll pray. Second, that's Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians chapter 4. Though he endured much suffering, though he endured much rejection, though he endured much heartache and pain, though he knew the difficulties of living and abounding in the work of God in this present age, Paul yet was not discouraged. Because he said in Romans 8 that there is a glory that makes all of these sufferings not even worthy to be compared with what is to come for those who know Christ. In 2 Corinthians 4 he says it this way. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Those things that are given to us by promise. Those things we anticipate by faith. Those things that God has declared to us in His Word, but we are yet to fully experience. That's what we look at. For these things which are seen are temporal, they're passing, they're going. Whether it be the glitter of all the world promises and pleasure, or whether it be the pain that the world brings in terms of suffering, they're all temporal. They're going away. They won't last. But the things which are not seen are eternal. That's why Christ could say, whoever gains the whole world but forfeits his soul What has he gained? Nothing. But in fact, he's lost everything, though he thought he gained it all. We should be those who say we have lost our life that we might gain it in Christ and live accordingly. And may God give us the grace to do so. If you do not know Christ, then you are either on, or every one of us is either on God's side who knows Christ, who love Him, who live for Him, who delight in Him, who rejoice in Him, delight in His Word. And then there are those who are not on God's side and there's only one other option, Satan's side. Believing his lies, following after his deception, doing the will of your father the devil, he said to the Jewish leaders. I pray that if any of you do not see the reality of the life of Christ in you, that you would take these things seriously and consider it and know his fullness of his grace and his mercy in Christ. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for not leaving us in the dark. You never have and you never would. But you have brought to us the light, the light of your word, which is a lamp unto our feet. You have brought to us the light of Christ, who is the light of the world. You have given us your spirit that has opened our eyes and removed the veil to see your glory in the face of Christ. 
And for those of us who then can read and think and understand about these things and find in them encouragement and strength and courage and even hope and joy. You have given us all of these things. We thank you for them. Help us to meditate on them. Help us to not brush aside or not consider as unimportant the great glories of heaven and all that you have prepared for us. For that is the very end of what we've been saved for. Not simply to live better here, but to live with you forever in your presence, fully experiencing all that you have designed and the redemption you have provided in your Son. Help us to delight in and meditate on those things and find courage in this world and be pure even as he is pure. And for those here who don't know you, and for those whom we come into contact with who don't know you, who don't have these as their delights, who might acknowledge them as true, and yet they don't delight in them. They don't find joy and strength from them. They don't find their heart drawn to you in the secret places. They don't desire that intimate fellowship with you. I pray that you would awaken them, that you would awaken their hearts, and that you would lead them to a true knowledge of you and of Christ, of their sin and the forgiveness that is available. And give them that hope which cannot be taken away. We thank you again for your sufficient and authoritative word. We thank you for your son in whom we have forgiveness. And it's his name we pray. Amen.